Well, again, thank you for being here today, uh, especially on such a special day for my family. We're, we're happy to have you. We're going to continue a conversation we started last week, and we'll actually continue that next week as well. But before we do, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote this. He said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. He went on, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Elsewhere, he contrasted cheap grace with what he refers to as costly grace, and he said this, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which we must knock. And he suggests that such grace is costly precisely because it is calling us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to follow in obedience, and to be shaped in that process of following. So we're continuing this conversation we started last week as we read the first few verses in a small passage in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus said this in verse 32. He said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we're spending a couple of weeks talking about the kingdom of God. We're calling this two-part series, The Kingdom, Gift, and Grit. The Kingdom, Gift, and Grit. So the kingdom, which again is how essentially Luke refers to the salvation of humankind and to the salvation of the whole world. The the kingdom is a gift, Jesus says. It, It is a gift that is received by grace through faith. We cannot earn it. We can't do anything to achieve it or progress to the point where we can acquire it. It is through and through a gift. We we can only have our eyes opened to that reality that already exists and receive it as a child receives a gift. So we're trying to hold these two things in tension, gift and grit. We focused last week on the gift, but we also must acknowledge that the only true indication of whether we have accepted, received the gift is seen in how we are living. Are we following in obedience? Are we allowing the gift that we have received freely, are we allowing that to now change us? The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The the life of discipleship, becoming a follower of Jesus, which is a lifelong process that we never complete. Discipleship requires effort. Discipleship costs us greatly. I mean, think of the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples last week. He says, look, guys, the kingdom is a gift. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you this. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to achieve it. It is a gift. And then 
Almost in the next breath, he goes on and says, so feel free to get rid of your stuff. It's a gift, but sell your possessions so that you can help those who are in need. That seems pretty extreme in terms of a response to a free gift. So this is the tension that our Bible gives voice to time and time again. The the tension that Jesus himself gives voice to. Faith will always work itself out in love. Faith will be demonstrated in the content of our character and how we are living the life we've been given, how we are responding to that gift, how we are participating in the kingdom as recipients of a free gift. And so we see as we continue this passage that Jesus fleshes this out a bit more. We'll pick it up in verse 35. So last week, the focus was all on gift. It is all grace. It is gift, nothing we can do to achieve or earn. And now the focus shifts at least a little bit to be primarily those positive, the the worthwhile behaviors or the character that disciples of Jesus should be cultivating. This is how we are changed as recipients of the gift. Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes back and knocks. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning, Jesus says. In other words, get ready and stay ready. There is effort involved in this life of a a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus indicates here that the disciples are going to be waiting. The kingdom is a gift, but it's not fully present in the here and now. You are going to be waiting for the consummation of that gift, and the wait could very well last a long time. And so while you're waiting, you need to be prepared to live with these responsibilities, to exert effort to put in the time and energy at following me. He says, stay dressed for action. Action. Now, earlier in the chapter, remember, Jesus encourages his followers, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you will wear, because life is more than the food we put into our bodies or the clothing we put on our bodies. And now here he suggests the only clothing you need to worry about is not this shirt, but It's the clothing of fidelity, the clothing of anticipation. Clothe yourself in expectancy. Dress as one who is dressed for action. The King James Version puts it this way, and I don't often quote from the King James Version, but it says, let your loins be girded. And that's why I don't often quote from the King James. That sounds really weird. And it is a foreign concept, but I I actually think it provides some helpful imagery in understanding what Jesus is getting at here. So, So typical garments at this point in history, even for men, consisted of, at least in part, a long dress like tunic as the primary piece of clothing. Now, I don't know from experience, because I'm more of a jeans or shorts kind of a guy, but I would imagine that physical, strenuous physical activity in that type of attire would have been 
quite difficult. If we're talking about manual labor or at this time in history, some battle of some sort, that would have been difficult in that attire. It's kind of like the kid at recess playing kickball wearing jinkos and a big baggy t-shirt that he got out of his brother's closet. It's difficult to run the bases and kick a ball when you're wearing baggy jeans that have a pocket down to your ankle. And so a common solution to this problem would, would have been to pull up the, the edges of that tunic, tie it around the waist with a rope, and it would sort of create these bunched up shorts, which would make strenuous physical activity a little more accessible. I thought about getting into character and demonstrating this, but <laughs> you're not going to be quite that lucky today. But th these are sort of like the first century, at least in my mind, which is a scary place to be, but sort of like the first century version of the zip-off pants. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you see somebody with zip-off pants, you know they are prepared for an adventure. <laughs> Likewise, if you see somebody girding up the loins, they are preparing themselves to do something physically demanding. Oh, is that a North Face tunic that you have girded up? <laughs> You're prepared for some serious adventuring. Jesus says, let your loins be girded or be dressed for action. Be dressed for action. The implication here is that our understanding of and our approach to that gift, the gift of the kingdom, our approach to that is not sort of the laissez-faire attitude. Well, well, I've got this gift. I've got this security now in my back pocket that, that goes down to my ankles. I've got this gift, so I don't, I don't need to think about how I'm living. I can pursue any life I want to. Life in the kingdom is not the life of swimsuit and sunglasses. It's the life of zip-off cargo pants with a hammer loop. That's a terrible analogy, but, but you get the point. Your figurative clothing, what you are clothing yourself in, demonstrates your understanding of discipleship, your understanding of the kingdom. If you're not dressed for action, you aren't going to be prepared to perceive the kingdom as it arrives and to receive it as a gift. To receive the kingdom, you first have to recognize that it is a reality and enter it. Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamp burning so that you see the kingdom and its king when he comes. I mean, have you ever tried swimming in denim? I, I have been thrown into a pool fully clothed. I did grow up with three older brothers. Swimming suits are designed like they are. It's not just style, but it's about functionality. You don't want to be wearing baggy denim or multiple layers of clothing in a body of water. It's not safe. It's not going to allow you to have freedom of movement. Or if you've tried running on a sandy beach in flip-flops, it's a disaster. You're not wearing the appropriate attire. The kingdom is sort of like that. Jesus says, dress, approach life. Like you understand that the kingdom requires something of you. 
dress, he says, like you are a servant waiting for the return of your master after a wedding feast. You know the master is going to return at some point, and you want things to be prepared for that return. As soon as the, there's a knock at the door, you want to be waiting and able to open the door. You're not hurriedly brushing popcorn crumbs off your shirt and shoving the trash and the remnants from a party under the couch so that they go undetected, but you are waiting, watching, alert, with your lamp burning so that when the king arrives with his kingdom, you are prepared to receive the gift. Jesus says to the disciples, you have this assurance that you have an inheritance. The kingdom is yours. It is a gift. But Jesus also warns, keep your eyes open. Keep your lamp burning brightly, lest you miss the coming kingdom. So there is effort involved. There's something required of us as we receive the gift. But the effort that we exert to live a holy life, it's not about At least in my view, it's not about appeasing God so that when he arrives, he won't destroy us. I think that, again, is to put the proverbial cart before the horse in thinking that it is our own righteous living that is going to, in the end, be our salvation. That our upright character is going to be the thing that makes us acceptable to God as an inheritor of the kingdom, and that is to invert how the kingdom works. And I think this continues to come through as we read what Jesus goes on to say. And it's easy to quickly peruse the rest of this passage and miss some of the significance of what Jesus implies. Let's read it in verse 37. He says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So the relationship at the center of this little section in Luke is the master-servant relationship. And the disciples of Jesus are likened to servants. Disciples, servants, Jesus is the master, but as we look closely at the passage, who actually is serving? Who is serving who? Disciples are the servants. Jesus is the master, but as we read, Jesus says, stay awake, be ready, be watchful, and dressed for action, because when the master returns, you need to be prepared, presumably to do what? Well, presumably to serve the master. You need to be ready to get him something to eat, to help him get cleaned up and ready for bed after celebrating at a wedding feast for a long time. But Jesus says, well, not exactly. He says, you're blessed if you are ready for the return of your master, not because you're going to be rewarded for your good behavior, Not because you're going to be rewarded when you serve Jesus appropriately, but you will be blessed because when the master arrives with his kingdom, you will be able to see it, you will be able to receive it, and he himself is going to dress for service. 
Jesus returns, dresses for service, invites his followers to recline at table. So it's this image of the, the great banquet and the wedding feast at the end of the age. This is a radical alteration of this relationship. A radical alteration of the language often used in the Christian faith. Well, I just want to serve God. And, and I think the truth behind that sentiment is worthwhile. I think it's biblically faithful, and I think it can even be helpful as we seek to understand the life of a disciple, that God in Jesus Christ is depicted and referenced as Lord and Master, even here in this passage. But a subtle point being made by Jesus seems to be at least that we aren't the ones serving God to make God happy. We aren't serving God as though God is in need of something from us. I mean, we should be in that typical master-servant relational paradigm, but lordship and servanthood are turned on their head by Jesus. We aren't serving God to, to give him something he is lacking so much as God is always meeting to serve, to dress for service, to invite us into his life. God is always meeting us, progressing to us, and we are called then to serve others in response to that love, the gifts that we have received, the grace we have received from God. We don't serve for the benefit of God, as though God is in need of something, or we don't serve so that God can be satisfied in himself with the gifts he gets from us. That is a misunderstanding of the, the relationship. God is giving the gifts and dressing for service. In Luke 22, when the disciples are arguing about which of them should be regarded as the greatest, Jesus responds in this way. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? So you may see some of the resonances in this passage and the one we're reading. It is not the one who reclines at table. And then he goes on, but I am among you as the one who serves. Kings of the Gentiles, masters of the world, lord that power and authority over their servants, but this kingdom doesn't quite operate in that way, and the point is made explicit at the end there. I am among you as the one who serves. I am meeting you to offer you this gift at great sacrifice to myself. Yes, I am the king of the universe. I rule and reign over everything, but I'm also the suffering servant that Isaiah points ahead to. And as we understand that, we can then focus our service not in trying to appease God, not in giving God something that he is lacking, but in giving service to those around us. The reformer Martin Luther put it this way. He said, God does not need our good works. God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. Or, or we read it in the, the Gospel John. 
Chapter 15, verse 15, what does Jesus say? No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So this is where these ideas are converging. Don't be afraid. From verse 32 that we looked at last week, don't be afraid. Your Father is giving you the gift of the kingdom. A world is coming to this world that is of much greater value than any treasure you could attain on this earth. So feel free to invest yourself in the kingdom rather than in treasures on this earth. Because it's of much greater worth. It can't spoil. It can't fade. It can't be stolen. So invest yourself. You can give up yourself to invest in that kingdom, a kingdom where you cannot lose the reward. This is the gift the Father gives. And now we come to the final two verses of this text, Luke chapter 12, verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The thief comes in the middle of the night, of course. If he came in the middle of the day, they would be prepared. And if the master of a house knew exactly when a thief was coming, of course they'd stay awake. Be prepared to to catch them, keep the lights on, be ready. Jesus says, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man comes at an hour you do not expect. This is a mystery of the faith that we confess. We believe that Jesus Christ will return to usher in his kingdom. The mystery of the faith that we confess both in song at times and in prayer, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We believe that Jesus, our King, Our servant master will return to usher in the consummated kingdom. Now, we're not interested in the timing. At least, I'm not. Maybe you are, but I'm not. I don't think there's much of a point in becoming preoccupied with when the king will return. We're not interested in the exact circumstances, political or otherwise, under which Christ returns. Could it be soon? I believe it could be. But as I heard one pastor suggest, for all we know, we are the early church. We we simply do not know the timing, and we're not interested in thinking about the timing or circumstances as much as we are in remaining vigilant in all circumstances, remaining vigilant in our fidelity to the kingdom and our preparedness for the arrival of our king. That is our task. Our task is not to determine what the situation will look like, but to remain prepared in all situations. So we live with this constant threat of change to our situation, of loss, of violence, watching everything that we know slip through our fingers. And the command to receive a gift, the kingdom, that calls us to then further get rid of our own stuff, to further 
divest ourselves of our energy and our time. That seems like it's a demanding call that threatens our security even more. But Jesus says, you can give your life away. You can give your stuff away. You can let go of acquisition and let go of security because you, you can't outgive me. There is a kingdom that my Father is, is giving you, a kingdom that is coming to this world that is of much greater value than anything you can possess on this earth. And it's a gift that cannot spoil, a gift that can't fade, a gift that can't be stolen. And our task is to be vigilant in returning again and again to the gift. Returning to the kingdom, having our eyes opened once again to the reality of the kingdom that God has given us so that we can then be shaped and formed into the image of Christ and continue to move forward, forward following closely behind Christ. Christ has met us, given us the gift of the kingdom, the gift of salvation. We are now free to give ourselves to others. And I think this is really all back to the character of God. When the master comes back, there's nothing to fear. He comes, dresses for service, makes his sacrifice known in your life. Our duty is to remain watchful, to be ready to keep the lamp burning brightly so that when our master returns, we're ready to receive him and ready to receive the gift he offers. Frederick Buechner summed it up in this way. He was speaking specifically of the idea of vocation, but I think we could broaden it to include any work that we participate in, any effort that we exert, any grit, as we're referring to it in this series, any grit that we demonstrate as participants in this kingdom. He said this, vocation is the place where your deep, Gladness meets the world's deep need. Your deep gladness, a recognition that any effort, any grit flows out of your understanding of grace, out of your understanding that you have received the kingdom as a gift, and then that gladness based on the gift you have freely received, that gladness responds in concrete ways to serve other people. Real, specific people with real, specific needs. And that's where we're turning our attention next week. Would you stand as we respond to what the Spirit of God might be doing in our hearts and our minds as we read through these words of Jesus today? Steve, if you would join me as we prepare for communion. I want to read a poem, George Herbert, the 17th, 17th century poet, who's also a priest in the, the Church of England. He wrote a poem entitled Love that I think captures some of this that's going on. He said, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back. Guilty of dust and sin, but quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack. From my first entrance in, drew nearer to me sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. 
A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I. Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Our master, our Lord, took upon himself suffering that we deserve as our servant. God doesn't need anything from us. God is giving. Giving, meeting you where you are giving. We respond to that invitation today around the table of our Lord. Around the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we freely accept this gift that we could do nothing to earn. But we are also shaped around this table. We are formed into the image of our Lord. Formed into the image of a suffering servant who gives up everything to be with those he loves. We invite you, as Christ is inviting all of us to his table, to taste, to eat, to receive, to enter the kingdom. We invite you this morning. We're gathering around the body and blood of our Lord. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. You can come forward. There will be somebody waiting for you with the bread and the cup. The words will be spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Would you come and receive the gift of the kingdom? Come and meet your master this morning.
Lord Jesus, we confess today together that you are our king, that you are our king. We take our direction from you. We follow in your footsteps. We invite you to shape our hearts, to shape our minds, to mold us into your image. So we declare, lead on, O king eternal. Lead on, O King Eternal. We understand that it is your example of service, your example of giving up rights, as Paul says in Philippians, laying divinity aside, laying rights aside to serve to make available to us this free gift of the kingdom that we can do nothing to earn. And in response, in joyful response, we humbly lay aside our desires, our ambitions, our thoughts of scarcity, our desire to stash and acquire our hopes of security, we lay it aside in service to your creation. Lead on, O King Eternal. We are following in submission to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.